Uh, Let me ask you to turn in the book of Acts to chapter 19. I'm going to do something uh, quite different with you today. Uh, I think Jesse has already done this, actually, but we're going to do it again. Uh, We're going to read an entire chapter of Scripture together. And it's not a short chapter, but I think it will go very fast because this chapter is one of the most action-packed chapters in the Bible. Uh, Acts chapter 19 is the story of Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus, and that's the capital city of the Roman province of Asia back at that time, so a very important city. And Paul was actually there for over two years, but Luke condenses his visit into this one chapter. So what we're going to do is kind of strap on our seatbelts, and we're going to blow through um, Acts chapter 19, and uh, hold on tight because a lot of stuff happens. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the spirit evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver." So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. 
And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, to whom all Asia and all the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with a confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. When they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another." But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled at the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So it was a fun two years for Paul, wasn't it? We have been talking about what I have been calling kingdom outposts. Kingdom outposts. If the, if the kingdom of God is God's rule over God's people in God's place, then kingdom outposts are, in a sense, the place. They are the places where the rule of God breaks through and then through his people, through the community of Christians, establishes a notable presence in a place, and that ends up having a big impact on the entire community. That's a kingdom outpost. And last week, we looked at the first one. We looked at that church, early church in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2. And that was kind of like seeing the church in its native habitat, right? And when we saw these new Christians clinging to one another in fellowship and growing together in their faith and hearing the Word of God, and, and as they followed Christ together, and as their lives were changed And as they worshiped together in full view of the community around them, there was a notable impact in terms of people's uh, minds being changed about Jesus, and of course a number of people, in fact daily, coming to know Jesus as Savior. That was Jerusalem. Well, now we're a few years later, we're a few hundred miles away, and what happens in Acts chapter 19 is much different. Now I'm sure the Ephesians we're doing the same things that the the Christians in Jerusalem were doing. I'm sure they were getting together and doing all those things as a church. But Luke's emphasis here is, is not on what happens when God's people are together. It's what happens when God's people get outside the walls of the church and bring the gospel out to the world at large, because that's what happens here. And I know that a lot of the emphasis here is on Paul and on what Paul does and says and on Paul's ministry, and Paul clearly earned a reputation for himself in the city of Ephesus. But Paul was not the only Christian sharing Christ in Ephesus at this time. There are others involved here. This is the church in action. And I can prove to you it's not Paul. There's a couple reasons why this is the case, that it's not just Paul. First of all, notice in verse 10 that Ephesus was not the only city that was impacted by, Paul's, by this ministry, by Paul's ministry extended. Because it says there, did you see that? The whole province of Asia. That's like today the whole nation of Turkey and then some. That's a big area. 
You see, Ephesus was located on the very western end of Asia Minor, and it was at the mouth of, of, the, um, of the Caister River. And as such, it, it was an important trade city, but it was also a kind of gateway to Asia for the Roman Empire. It was the gateway to many other cities that were a little farther inland or maybe a little bit more up the coast. And we know from history, and in some cases directly from the Bible, that around this time, churches started popping up in all sorts of different cities, and a lot of them were cities that Paul never got to visit, places like Colossae and Smyrna and Pergamum and Laodicea and Philadelphia. Do any of those names sound familiar to you? They, you, they will be if you've read the book of Revelation. It is probable, it's probable what happened during this time of Paul's extended ministry in Ephesus that some of the Ephesian believers actually took the gospel inland to these other cities, and it's even more likely that people from these other cities came through Ephesus, and when they did, they encountered Paul and the other believers, they came to Christ, and when they went back to where they lived, they planted churches. So this is happening during this time. A second thing to notice here is that, it, it, kind of proving that it's not just Paul, is that there are a group of disciples surrounding Paul. Did you notice that? I'm sure this includes these men that came to Christ at the beginning of the chapter. We'll talk about them in a minute. But it, and it certainly includes Timothy and Erastus and Gaius and Aristarchus and the other ones who are mentioned here. But no doubt there were many other people who were converted to Christ during Paul's ministry, those three months that he was speaking in the synagogue, which is longer than he usually got to stay speaking at a synagogue. But when the synagogue leaders finally had enough of all this Jesus talk and they kicked Jesus, or they basically kicked Paul out of the synagogue. It says that he took these disciples with him to his next preaching location, which was definitely not in a church or in a synagogue or any kind of religious place. It says here that the center of Paul's preaching in Ephesus was a lecture hall run or possibly owned by a guy named Tyrannus, which is kind of interesting because the word Tyrannus means tyrant. And one of my commentaries said it like this. I thought it was kind of funny. Since it is difficult, except in certain bleak moments of parenthood, to think of any parent naming his or her child Tyrant, this was probably a nickname given to the man by his students or tenants. So here's what happens. Paul has been kicked out of the synagogue, and he's looking for a new place to have his, his preaching and speaking and teaching ministry, and he says, where shall I go? Oh, look over there. That hall looks kind of promising. Who runs that place? Oh, that's, that's run by the guy they call the Tyrant. You need to talk to him. So Paul's like, Tyrant, huh? Okay, sounds like my kind of guy. Let's go talk to him. And so Paul somehow works out a deal with this guy, and the Christians start meeting at the Hall of the Tyrant, which is a good reminder um, for us, I think, that, that in our lives, we will have opportunities to talk about Jesus in places that are very different than and much removed from church, from a church environment. Your best conversations about Jesus with non-Christians are going to take place on the ball field and in the stands and in restaurants, and in cafeterias, and in hospital rooms, and in offices, and in, on construction sites, and on airplanes, and in the gym, and in any number of other very non-church-like settings that are not typically thought of as holy ground. But you know what? Once that conversation starts, you're on holy ground, no matter where you are, even if you're in a bar, okay? In this case, it seems that most of the conversations in Ephesus were kicked off by what Paul was saying in this Ephesian lecture call here, in Tyrannus' lecture hall. And other people were kind of capitalizing on that. I remember back when I was in college a um, long time ago, there was an evangelist that came to campus. His name was Cliff Connectly. 
don't know if anyone's ever heard of him. He was, a, I think he was with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, but he was a big, tall guy with a booming voice, a very commanding presence. He was a former Davidson College basketball player. And he would set up just outside the student center where pretty much everybody had to pass several times a day. And he would get out there and he'd just start talking about Jesus right there. And, and, and he'd invite people to ask whatever questions they wanted to ask of him, and there were no exceptions, no holds barred, say whatever you want. And it often got kind of interesting and kind of controversial and pretty heated too. But, but the real action was not going on there. Because the whole idea was this, that the Christians that were on campus already that were associated with Campus Crusade and InterVarsity and groups like that were supposed to kind of be in the crowd whenever we could, and then we were to engage the people around us in discussion, and over time through doing that, more and more people around campus would become familiar with this guy, and they would hear what he was saying, and more conversations would be taking place about Jesus all over the campus. And I was part of those conversations, and some of them were very difficult, but it happened. And sometimes in your life, maybe it's at your workplace, maybe it's in some other setting, but, but have you ever been in a place where all of a sudden the gospel or Jesus or Christianity or the church or the Bible just gets kind of injected into the conversation, right? Maybe you didn't bring it up, but all of a sudden it's in the air. And, or maybe a Christian song comes on the radio, you know, and you say, oh, that's my favorite song. And, and, and this can lead to a conversation where you can ask questions Find out where people are at in their relationship or lack of relationship with God. Maybe even have opportunities to speak some scripture, to share the gospel, or to share something that God's done in your own life. This was certainly happening all over Ephesus at this time because you can tell Jesus is just in the air in this city. Everybody's talking about it, thanks largely to Paul's bold preaching, and also thanks largely to the miracles, of course, that were accompanying it, because they were talking about that too. But what, what I want to do in, in the rest of our time here is I want to look at different sections of this narrative. We won't read the whole thing again. We'll just look at parts of it. But, but I want to look at the various types of people that encounter the gospel in Acts 19 and what happens when they do, because there are different kinds of people here. And, and my guess is, the reason I want to do this is because my guess is that if you look at, at first century Ephesus and then you look at 21st century Lexington, North Carolina, you will think that they pretty much have almost nothing in common. But you'd be wrong, because we're going to find out we have a lot in common with these people in, in Ephesus in Acts 19. You'd be surprised how much there is. So who are these different types of people that in one way or another encounter Jesus through Paul or through others in, in Acts 19, and how are they like people that we know or maybe even like us? Well, first we have these men in verses 1 to 7, and I'm going to describe these as people who have incomplete information about Jesus. People who have incomplete information about Jesus. They're on the right track, but they, they, they kind of need to know more. It turns out that these men are calling themselves disciples, and they're, 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 they know about John the Baptist. They've probably been baptized in John's name, and so they've come out of his ministry, but they don't know Christ. And John, as Paul says here, Paul comes to them and says, look, you need to know about John the Baptist. He called people to repent of their sins. And John did that. Remember, he said, repent, for the kingdom of God is coming. And he said, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. And he talked to people about their sin, and they were convicted of their sin. But John's ministry didn't have everything, because John's ministry did not include the way that 
the sins could be forgiven or the actual power to live a new life. That would only come with the preaching of Jesus Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul told them about Jesus. He told them about the one John once called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and that Jesus was the fulfillment of John's preaching about repentance. And then he prayed for them and he laid hands on them. And and as they came to complete faith in Christ, they also received new life through the Holy Spirit and they experienced the Spirit's power in their lives for the first time. Now I'm guessing that you know people like this. People who have this in common with these guys at Ephesus, they, they don't have the whole story about Jesus. They have some of the story. In fact, I would say this, living around here, they've heard the whole story about Jesus, but it just didn't sink in. Part of it, you know, kind of got sunk in there. Jesus was a great moral teacher, they know that. They may even believe that Jesus was the Son of God. Most people here have no problem with that. They respect him. They're trying to live according to his teachings. So in a way, they're trying to live the Christian life, but they can't because they haven't been forgiven of their sins and they haven't been born again through the power of the Holy Spirit. And in order for that to happen, they need to hear and understand the gospel. They need to learn that that Jesus is not just their example and teacher and son of God, but he is their savior. He is the one who died and rose again, not just for the sins of the world in some academic sense, but for their sins. And he's offering them new life. Now, if you have a friend like this, and I know you do, maybe you can tell them the truth kind of from your own life like this. You can say, you know, I try to follow Jesus too. I know he's the son of God, and and I I try to live like Jesus, but I just don't have the power to do it. What I need is his forgiveness, because I keep falling short over and over and over again, you know, and I need to be made a whole new person. But you know what? That's why Jesus came, not just to show me how to live, but to die in my place and then to live through me by his spirit. Did you know that he did that for you too? Don't assume that just because somebody grew up in the Bible Belt, they know the gospel. They may just know that Jesus is a great religious leader. He's the Son of God. He's the person they're supposed to try to obey or try to imitate. They need the rest of the story. They need to know what Jesus did for them because they have incomplete information. Now, there's another group of people in Ephesus, and these people have the wrong idea about Jesus. And these people are represented here by these seven sons of Siva in the story that's maybe kind of humorous to us today, but it was kind of intense at the time. These were not the only guys who did this. There were a lot of people trying to do what they were trying to do, but these are the ones who apparently paid the biggest price um, with this demon encounter here. You have to understand that Ephesus was a really dark place, spiritually speaking. It was a center of the worship of false gods, especially Artemis. Now, if you went to high school and learned about Greek mythology, you probably learned that Artemis um, was the very nice, almost chaste kind, of, chaste kind of goddess of the hunt and the moon. Well, not, not in Ephesus, okay? The Ephesian Artemis is a little different. She's actually a fertility goddess, and, and her temple, uh, which is actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, was four times as big as, as the big Parthenon in Athens. So it was a huge temple, and it was the scene of a lot of sexual perversion, among other things. And al- although you don't see a lot of demonic activity in Acts compared to, say, the Gospels, Ephesus is different. This place is just crawling with demons because they're attracted there by all this sick behavior and all this false worship. And God is going to use Paul to make a statement in Ephesus. 
the passage where, where these items that had touched Paul's skin could heal diseases and cast out demons, commentators do not know what to do with that because it's so strange, it's so over the top, and it's so unusual. A few of the commentators even think that that was kind of smuggled into the Bible later by some superstitious copyist. But that's not true. It's, it's legit. And notice that Luke tells us here. Luke says, this is not normal. This is not normal experience, even for an apostle. In verse 11, it says, Luke says that extraordinary miracles were being done through Paul. And the, the phrase extraordinary miracles, it literally means like miracles that are more than just normal miracles. So what's a normal miracle? I don't know, but these were bigger. These were like over that level. So what's happening here is God is going out of his way at this point to confront the evil spirits of Ephesus. And it's interesting, the victory comes in a very odd way. Maybe a very unexpected way. There are a lot of people today whom you know and they see Jesus, they probably have a picture of him on their wall. And they, they see him as a kind of spiritual superman who, who can, they can call upon when they get into trouble, you know, or when they need a miraculous healing, or when they need a financial breakthrough. They, just, they can call and pray out to Jesus and, and, and that he'll deliver for them. That's who Jesus is. And to be honest, they're sometimes encouraged in that belief by what they hear from preachers they see on television. Preachers that teach that the spoken words have power in and of themselves and that if you can, using the name of Jesus, just speak the right words and believe hard enough to infuse those words with just the right amount of faith that you will release God's power into the situation and receive the miracle that you've been hoping for because now you've unlocked the secret to God's blessing and he is now obligated to answer your prayer. There are a lot of problems with that teaching. But one of the big ones is that it turns faith into a mere formula and it shortcuts the relationship, short circuits the relationship between the believer and Christ. You cannot exercise the authority of Jesus outside of a relationship with Jesus. And you cannot use his name as you would cast a magic spell. And when the sons of this Jewish high priest try to use the name of Jesus in this way, they very quickly and very painfully find out, and everybody else in town soon, find, soon finds out, that Jesus is not subject to the commands of men. We don't use him, he uses us. And here, he even uses an evil spirit for his own purposes. Did you notice that? Isn't that weird? You know, I'm thinking this demon who beat these guys up, I'm thinking he ended up in big trouble with his boss. Right, Because in doing this, what did he do? In saying the things that he said and doing what he did, he really overplayed his hand. And suddenly everybody in Ephesus knew that it wasn't Paul who made the difference. And it wasn't these cloths that were touching his body that made the difference. There was something else. These miraculous healings and deliverances were not because of a man. There was something way more powerful than that going on here, a power they couldn't ever hope to control, a power that didn't answer to human beings, and in fact a power that human beings had to answer to. And suddenly... Ephesus, this big city, was full of fear because they were dealing with something that was way off the map. They didn't know what to think of it. So now let's get to our third group, the regular, everyday, idol-worshiping, pagan people of Ephesus. Okay, Because once it became evident that in, in this Jesus whom Paul was preaching, that he was a god more powerful than anything they had ever known, they only had two choices. Either bow to this God or try to resist Him. But it wasn't an easy decision. 
Because as Luke shows us, these people had a lot to lose by embracing Jesus and believing the gospel. See, the history books will tell you this, that by this time, Ephesus was very much on its way downhill. It was a city in decline. Because the deforestation all up and down the coast around Ephesus had turned that once busy seaport into a muddy, swamp-like place that could no longer support the kind of maritime trade that Ephesus had once been famous for. And the city was, would have died economically, but for one thing, the huge influx of tourists that came to visit the temple of Artemis. In other words, their idolatry had now become their economy. Artemis was all they had left. But in verse 18, we see that still, for many of the people of Ephesus, Artemis would no longer do. They had discovered the true God and true salvation through Christ, and so they made a very public, very definitive break with their former religion and their former way of life, some of them perhaps even giving up their livelihood in the process here when they burned these magic books that were worth so much money, and when they confessed their sorcery as the sin that it was, and they committed their lives, and some of them committed their financial futures to Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, do you think you'd have been able to do this? if you were one of these people in Ephesus, to give up that kind of money, to give up even to the point of taking the tools of your trade and burning them in the fire to follow Jesus, because that's what some of them did, to admit that you'd been living a lie for who knows how long. Could you say that? To face the anger and the ridicule and the abuse of the people who had once been your friends and your colleagues? Would Jesus have been worth it to you if that's what it took for you to follow him? So great was this move of the Spirit in Ephesus, so influential was this new outpost of God's kingdom, that it actually began to threaten the financial health of the whole city. And it provoked a riot that probably would have gotten Paul killed if his Christian brothers and sisters had not held him back from addressing the crowd. Because you know what? Luke, Luke has kind of a weird, understated sense of humor. When you read Luke and Acts, you figure this out. When Luke says that there was no small disturbance, you know what he means? There was a really big disturbance. And you might say that in verse 32, we almost have another group of people. I haven't written them down, but the people who have no idea what's going on. That's another group of people, and they're just following the crowd. And you know what? That's a big group of people today, isn't it? People who don't have a clue, and they're just doing what everybody else does. I'll share a story with you that I think I've shared once before, um, but I'll share it again because it's about a time I met somebody famous, and everybody likes to share about times they met somebody famous. Um, but I once sat on a plane next to George Thorogood, who is the guy, if you don't know who that is, he's the guy that sings bad to the bone. Okay, Actually, he's the other guy that sings bad to the bone. Somebody in this church sings it better than George Thorogood, and I'll let you guys talk to each other about that. He's in this room right now, and you can talk about it later. But actually, you know, in the plane, I wasn't with him the whole time. People in the band were kind of switching around, and so I actually spent most of the, of the time on the plane sitting next to George's manager, who was a really nice guy, and we got into a pretty long, deep conversation about a whole lot of things, and uh, we were getting along great, and all of a sudden he says, you know who I just hate and who I just can't stand? I said, who? He said, those evangelical Christians. And I said, uh, I'm like, okay. I said, we're not all that bad, are we? And uh, he, was, he was a little bit flustered at that point. Um, but I, I didn't press him real hard because he was kind of at a disadvantage there. But you know what? He couldn't really come up with any solid reasons. It was just in the air, in the place where he was from. And this just reminded me, you know what? What? 
there really is an antagonism sometimes. There really is enmity sometimes. And we have to admit that sometimes we earn it by being stupid and obnoxious. But other times it's just a prejudice. And we just have to deal with it and respond, listen, with kindness and reasonable words. Kindness and reasonable words. And it's pretty amazing when you think about it. Christians are sometimes ridiculed as being, what, unreasonable and fanatical? Read Acts chapter 19. Who's being unreasonable? Who's being fanatical here? After all, what did Paul do and what did his companions do to provoke this kind of response? If I look back over the whole chapter, I can only find two things Paul was doing. He was reasoning and persuading. He was just discussing Jesus with people and trying to convince them of the truth of the gospel. That's it. He wasn't attacking the cult of Artemis or profaning her temple in any way. And the city clerk makes this very clear in his speech. Paul did not come to Ephesus Ephesus saying, you know what, Artemis is the official goddess of this place, so I'm here to take down Artemis. He didn't do that. Why not? He didn't have to. He didn't have to, and neither do we. You see, what Paul had and what we have today was the truth. And when the truth of the gospel is presented to people in the power of the Holy Spirit, it will expose all the lies and it will confront the false gods people have been trusting in. And sometimes that will get messy and even provoke a violent response from people because our cultures are so deeply invested in their false gods. That's why she was called not just Artemis, but what? Artemis of the Ephesians. Because if you lived in Ephesus, Artemis was just a fact of life. It was who you were. It was part of the fabric of your existence. So deeply do people's false gods burrow into their lives. Ephesus giving up Artemis was like Lexington giving up barbecue, okay? Or High Point giving up furniture. That would be serious, wouldn't it? But it's worth, worth asking the question, what are the false gods of our city? What are the false gods of Lexington or Davidson County or the triad or the state or America or our culture? What spirits does Jesus have to confront when he sets up a kingdom outpost like this in a place like Davidson County? What gods are we implicitly calling people to forsake when we share the good news of Jesus with them? And for that matter, what are the gods who vie for our allegiance sometimes, right, even as Christians? They can pull us away. What in our lives has the power to call us away from Jesus, and when it says jump, we say how high? What do we worship when we're not worshiping Jesus? Most of the gods in our culture today are different from the gods of Ephesus and places like that because most of our gods are generally not bad things. What they usually are are good things that have the tendency to become ultimate things and to take over our lives. Right? So somebody already mentioned from the crowd there, money. In most places, like where we live, money is a god for many people. The idea, and it doesn't matter how much you have or how little you have, the idea that financial abundance and financial security is a non-negotiable requirement for ultimate meaning and happiness. But you know what? When we're really captivated by the saving love of Jesus, money takes its rightful place as a tool and not as a master. What about our families? 
I step on your toes. What about our children? They become idols to us. Not because we shouldn't love our children. Of course we should love our children. We should love our children ferociously. We should want the best for our children. But you know, in, in the sense that their progress or achievement in sports, academics, or extracurriculars can easily become the top priority in our lives. This is a God that the Titus family has been fighting for generations. But when Jesus takes his proper place in our lives, so do these things, and we stop living vicariously through our children. For a lot of people today, what they call science is becoming a God. You've heard this, right? You even see that word capitalized in the middle of sentences these days, right? Science. As if science has the final word on everything. And, and by science, people don't realize this, but what they mean is the so-called scientific community. Which, and I'm not talking about the coronavirus, okay? I'm talking about something a little bit more deeper than that. I'm talking about how science now feels empowered to speak, not merely to issues having to do with the material world, but, but also to ultimate questions about purpose and meaning and the identity of, of humanity. But you know what? Once you embrace the salvation that was bought for you through the blood of Jesus, God, who became a real flesh and blood human being for you, you will never again fall for the idea that life began by random chance or that your identity and destiny can be determined by the impersonal forces of nature. Still, giving up that rationalistic worldview is, is a tough pill to swallow for a lot of people. Do you know what the, the greatest God is? Ultimately, the greatest God in our culture, I'm convinced today, is simply the God of personal autonomy. The idea that we are not defined by God or anyone else, and we are responsible to determine our own identity, to chart our own course, and to be our own Lord and Master. It's the God of self. And if someone comes to Christ, that God is going to have to be crucified. And for most people, that's the God that makes their soul scream the loudest when they meet Jesus because it's the hardest one to let go of. But take heart. Because as you go out into this world and as you have conversations about Jesus outside of these walls, the Holy Spirit goes with you. Okay? He's here this morning, but he's not just here. And as you pray for opportunities, the Spirit will lead you to them. And as Jesus gets injected into the atmosphere, maybe even by you once in a while, the Spirit will even work in the lives of the people that you're talking with. And he will convince some of them of the truth that their gods are inferior and powerless compared to the real God who loved them and came down to rescue them and to give them eternal life.